Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week, we brought you news of a concerning report on how many Americans head outside for recreation. It shows that nearly half of all Americans don't get outside at all for recreation. We also reported on a new species of Allosaurus discovered in Dinosaur National Monument in Utah and told you about a cross-country skier in Yellowstone National Park who was attacked by a coyote near Canyon. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we sit down with Emily Hoff and Megan Keller to discuss their upcoming book, Scenic Science of the National Parks, an explorer's guide to wildlife, geology, and botany. The book, scheduled to be available March 31st, is a wonderfully new guidebook to help you get the most out of your national park adventures. We also talk with Tanya Schenk, a park service scientist who helped develop a draft framework for bison stewardship in the Midwestern region of the park system. It's a region where you can find bison at Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve in Kansas, Badlands National Park and Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota, and Theodore Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota. There are many resources to help you get the most out of your national park adventures. And there are dozens of guidebooks, it seems, that profess to be the authority on visiting the parks. But there's a new book coming out later this spring that takes a new approach to visiting the parks. An approach built around a park's residents, so to speak, their plants, their wildlife, even the geology. Scenic Science of the National Parks, an Explorer's Guide to Wildlife, Geology, and Botany, is scheduled to be available on March 31st. We've invited the authors, Emily Hoff and Megan Keller, to preview their book. Welcome to The Traveler, ladies. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. What a splendid introduction that was. Wow. (laughs) You know, I've long thought that there had to be a different way to guide visitors to parks beyond the usual park guidebooks. You know, the books that talk about lodging and best trails and where to dine and what to bring. And it seems that you two have hit on one incredibly obvious approach. How did you get there? So um, Megan and I actually went to undergrad together a million years ago. And from that time, when we bonded over being enormous nerds who loved making elaborate study guides together, uh, we knew that we wanted to take on some kind of creative project together. And we knew that we wanted to focus it around curiosity and around the idea of free choice learning. Um, The idea that you can learn a fact just because it's fun to know it. Um, not for any purpose. You don't need to go get a PhD. You don't need to do anything with it other than just sort of know something or look a little differently at the world around you. Um, And we went through a lot of different iterations with the project and it finally came down to, we both have a really deep interest in traveling and specifically traveling in the national parks. And of course, there are many different ways to travel and many different reasons to travel. You can travel for art or music or food. Um, But we found ourselves asking questions about what would it mean to be a science tourist? How could we travel through the lens of science? 
And so we started taking little trips to the parks and hiking with very obliging paleontologists and astronomers who answered all sorts of insane questions from us. Uh, and little by little, this idea of finding a way to help people see the parks with um, somewhat of a secret decoder ring or a pair of x-ray glasses um, that help you see the same sights as everyone else, but pay attention to the little details that bring it all into focus in a totally different way. Do you guys have science backgrounds? I mean, what, what type of degrees did you get? Um, so when we met, actually, actually, I'll let Megan answer that question. <laughs> Yeah, so when we met, we uh, were both theater majors in our undergrad. So we both, I did technical theater and Emily did um, acting and performing, <clears throat> but also she had a focus on history and I had a focus on English. So we, like, like Emily said, we really wanted to work together and Emily can tell her story better than I can, but after we left undergrad, I ended up doing theater professionally for a while and then moving into um, actually publishing. So I worked in higher education publishing for a few years and then I was in sales and had done a lot of sales and project management on a full-time and freelance basis as Emily and I were kind of working through what our business relationship would be and what uh, our this ultimate project would be. And I think Emily's background maybe makes a little more sense as you're thinking through it, but that's me. So after um, we met in undergrad, which I think it's important to say that Megan was a stage manager um, as part of her technical theater thing. And if anyone out there is considering going into business with anyone, find yourself a stage manager. They know exactly what's going on at all times. They're brilliant <laughs> business partners. Um, I ended up taking a track into museums. I got a graduate degree in history and museum studies. Uh, but immediately out of grad school was poached onto a museum project for NASA. Um, with zero science training, I became this kind of perfect liaison between the average layperson um, and a bunch of really smart engineers and astronauts. Uh, and it, um, I was working on a project to research and write the exhibit for the new space shuttle Atlantis. Uh, it was at the very end of the shuttle program, which tells you how long ago I went to grad school. Um, so I sort of got catapulted into the science world and have been there ever since. Uh, I work with all sorts of museums all over the country and all over the world developing science exhibits um, and also touring programs, um, mostly focused around being a science communicator. So I have this sort of um, abiding interest in communicating science in a really casual and fun way. Um, it seemed really unapproachable to me for a very long time. And so I'm happy to help other people see that it is also approachable. And Megan and I have long loved nature documentaries, especially David Attenborough documentaries. And so this book is more or less an attempt for us to be David Attenborough in the national parks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. So, fair enough. Um, it, it's definitely interesting. And I'm guessing you had to do some market research to see if there was anything like it out there. Definitely. Um, I have quite a, the um, Amazon and thrift books and sort of used book um, store circuit that I take myself on, um, looking for all sorts of guidebooks about the parks. And we just didn't see anything that was quite 
what we wanted to create, which seemed like the perfect opportunity. So how did you go about collecting the information that you've crunched and presented in a, a highly digestible form? Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Um, that was our, our big goal. Um, we did a lot of research, you know, before we went into the parks, both by way of park websites, but also, you know, digging into things that we thought might be interesting or hikes that we might thought might be interesting. And then we actually did a lot of travel. So we took for the past, I guess, or 20, what, 2016, 2017, 2018, we spent um, a lot of time in those summers traveling and moved through the parks. So when we would go to a park, we would often just go to the visitor center and, and talk to the wonderful people who work at the visitor centers about what they find interesting in the parks, where their favorite places are, and kind of explain what the project was and that we were focusing on wildlife geology and botany. And so they often shared things that they didn't necessarily always get to talk about with your average visitor. I think uh, most often I, we, we ask this of people, you know, what do you hear most often is your question. And they hear about, you know, where's the bathroom um, a lot. They, a they don't hear one. really, yeah, they don't hear really compelling questions. And so when they have the opportunity to talk about what they're passionate about, they were very generous. So, so we leaned on them a lot. And then, you know, after we left the parks, we also had a lot of information that we needed to distill and go through. And that was really the storytelling component and the distilling component of what, what will mean something to people here and what is, you know, visited enough that it's not difficult for too many people to get to, but still has a compelling storyline. So we really worked hard to find those interesting storylines in scientist research often uh, written at a very high level. And, and then, you know, we would contact those people and have conversations to try to tell that story in a more translatable way. So it, it really involved a lot of, a lot of research and a lot of travel and actually getting into the park. And there were some really fun parts about it too. We hiked in every single park and it's not a hiking book. Um, but we do reference some cool trails where people can go interact with the science with their hands and and so it was this amazing combination of us getting to travel as regular people and also travel as information gatherers. And I think that was a really powerful part of our experience. And you did this all uh, in your spare time, so to speak, outside of your day job. Yeah, for those first two years in 2016 and 2017, um, that was just us getting on the road and getting curious. Um, in 2018, we were fortunate enough to get a book deal and um, so part of our costs got to be covered by that, which meant that we could spend uh, four months on the road visiting about 20 national parks. Um, it was the trip of a lifetime, to be sure. Did, did you visit each of the national parks that you've written about? In total, we visited 25. There are 60 covered in the book. Um, and now, of course, we have uh, the remaining lot on a very... Um, lengthy to-do list, um, having done all the research about them and contacted so many people in these parks. Um, I feel like I already will know it when we show up. <laughs> We're talking today with Emily Hoff and Megan Keller, authors of a brand new book to the parks that's coming out in March called Scenic Science of the National Parks, an explorer's guide to wildlife, geology, and botany. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. 
Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Now, ladies, um, in the book, you've hit on some obvious topics and on some not so obvious topics. I'm not sure that any other park guidebook discusses lichens at Yosemite. Why did you choose that for a topic to include? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So I was really wondering what we could do with Yosemite because, unfortunately, we weren't able to visit Yosemite because of the fires that were happening. And so uh, I believe at the time we were scheduled to go to Yosemite, all but one entrance was closed and we were encouraged, you know, not to go. And it was a huge park on our list that we thought visiting would make an impact because it's so heavily visited. So when we were back doing our research about, you know, storylines in Yosemite, I was really taken by some of the climate change research that they're doing there. And not to get political at all, but right now with our current administration, there isn't as much of a focus on um, climate change research in some of these spaces. And so a lot of the foundations in Yosemite are supporting that research right now. And so I came across an article about all of the lichens that you see throughout all of the different elevations of Yosemite and what that actually, what story that actually tells. And so I spoke with a wonderful scientist who was doing research in um, Yosemite and working for the park. And he now works, I believe for the forest service. So he's kind of moved through mm -hmm. the federal spaces and basically what, what we can tell from, from the lichen that we see is how the air quality is doing. And the interesting thing is that given Yosemite's location, it's so near um, agricultural uh, bastions, I guess. I don't know a better word than that right now. But <laughs> um, there's a lot of, of information that we can gather kind of early on in the climate change process. And so when certain lichens are thriving and certain lichens are struggling, we can we can learn about how the air quality is changing. And given the fact that Yosemite is a protected space, it tells us a little more than just gathering that data, you know, in a regular city. And so I thought, what's something that everyone will see? You know, everyone, when they go to Yosemite, will see a lichen. And 
how can we tell a story about that and and all of that climate research and just also lichens just look really cool they live in a really cool way there many of them are brightly colored you can see them from close up you can see them from far away so to me it felt like a, a really compelling story to tell no absolutely um it's definitely not something that somebody thinks about when they go to uh, yosemite that's for sure yeah, and Kurt, if I could just jump in to say, um, sure. Megan gave you a really good zoom in of the process. And the larger level of it is that, of course, the parks have fantastic interpretation even of them in and of themselves. They have great interpretive signage. The rangers and the volunteer staff are extremely helpful and very knowledgeable. Um, and so we challenged ourselves to find storylines between the ones that were already being talked about. And that often takes the form of, you know, you might read a plaque and there's one sentence that jumps out at you and you say, hey, what about that? But it's, mm -hmm. you know, a bit of an aside um, <clears throat> or something that a ranger mentions and you think, oh, interesting. Uh, but there isn't anything more about it. Uh, so we tried to find those storylines that were a little bit to the side of what you might see elsewhere. But like Megan was saying, were things that are colorful and obvious and interesting to look at in a variety of ways or to interact with in a variety of ways um, to really engage your senses. You know, along, along that line, um, there's another interesting tidbit that, that jumped out at me um, from Yellowstone National Park, one of my favorite parks, and um, bison, one of my favorite animals. And you guys point out that uh, those bison that winter in thermal areas of the park actually have shorter lifespans than those that don't. Yeah, so that was another one that we really wanted to explore. We were in the park, um, I guess, in 2017, and a ranger actually shared just, again, like a brief tidbit when we were on a group hike about the bison wintering near these thermal features. <clears throat> and we hadn't known anything about that. And obviously bison are incredibly iconic, certainly in Yellowstone. And we thought, well, we could tell a story about bison. What is it about these teeth? Like, is there actually something to that? Or was it just a tidbit? So digging into the research, you know, obviously, like, like we mentioned in the book, there are any number of factors that can contribute to this. And so there's, there's no way to really know for sure, but it looks like the fact that there's silica in the, in the waters that are being absorbed by the grasses that the bison are eating near those thermal features, it actually wears their teeth down more quickly than the bison that choose to winter elsewhere. And so when we think about teeth erosion, and their ability to, you know, eat and sustain themselves, it, it could have a huge effect on their mortality. And we just thought that was so interesting because one of us on the group is also kind of averse to cold weather more so than the other one. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a question of what are you willing to risk in order for comfort? And so obviously that's kind of oversimplifying, but we thought it was a very interesting angle and a really interesting way to talk about these iconic creatures in a way that many people haven't heard about before. For sure, for sure. Now, um, along with educating readers on plants, animals, geology, you also weren't afraid to educate them on proper behavior in the parks, such as enjoying wildlife from a distance or staying out of desert potholes. Yeah, that was something that was really important to the um, subject matter experts, the rangers and the scientists that we spoke with about their work in the park. 
Um, and it also as park travelers, it's something that's really important to us. We have unfortunately seen quite a lot of the bad behavior that you hear about in parks. And many times it just stems from people not knowing any better. Sometimes that's willful ignorance, sometimes it's not. But it's always helpful um, to take an opportunity to say, here's how you can appreciate this thing, but here's how to do it safely and here's how to do it in a respectful manner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, ever encounter anybody um, being disrespectful when you were out there in the parks? Oh, Kurt. All the time. <laughs> you know, it really gave us an opportunity to be real empathetic to the people who are kind of constantly walking through the park as rangers, hoping to do interpretation and hoping to help people engage with the land and having to often, you know, kind of discipline people. So we, I, we could give any number of stories, I think. I think the biggest thing for us was, was being our own advocates and certainly being advocates for the park and trying to inform people when they were doing something that they shouldn't be in a, in a gentle way and assuming the best, even though it's possible that they were, you know, nefarious in their intentions, but trying to inform them of, you know, an example would be somebody rock picking on a shore in a, in Acadia. And that's illegal, but obviously just really problematic for the ecosystem and for the park itself. And so making sure that people know that in this part of the coast, they're simply just not allowed to do that. And and oftentimes, if we saw people doing something like that, they they could do that elsewhere. And, and that is also true. You know, rock picking is a common hobby for people. And so just making sure people understand that sometimes the lines are blurry, sometimes the rules are different, but trying to understand that you're not the first person here, you won't be the last person here, and everything you do is going to have an impact on the land. And, and you know, trying to be kind and generous about it instead of you know, angry, which we were on the inside, but that wouldn't get us anywhere. <laughs> now, you, you're definitely right that the, the lines are blurry at times because there there are units in the national park system where you are allowed to collect, for instance, seashells. So, you know, what's okay in one park may not be okay in another park. And sometimes it's tough to stay on top of all the rules that are out there. That's why people need to educate themselves and pick up the park newspaper once they come into a unit of the park system. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the single biggest thing, right, is that though the national parks are administered together, they're all very individual places um, that have their own unique cultures, both in terms of the park themselves and, of course, the cultures that have lived on the land for thousands of years. And so there are many different ways to respect that land, and the best is just to acquaint yourself with the area. Now, I was a bit surprised um, that you decided to go with... uh listing each park's alpha code. Um, and, and for listeners who don't know what a park alpha code is, it's the, uh, the four-letter designator that the National Park System uses to identify a park, like Yellowstone would be Y-E-L-L. Grand Canyon, they would use the first two letters of Grand and the first two letters of Canyon to produce G-R-C-A. What, what made you guys decide to go with that? So that came about for a few different reasons. One is that once we figured out what those codes were, we thought they were really nifty. Um, You are nerdy. Yeah. Oh, my God. Listen, I promised. (laughs) If the college study guides weren't enough, we delight in these alpha codes. Um, But it was also to kind of make short work of what can be kind of confusing. For a park like Great Smoky Mountains, um, the Great Smoky Mountains 
it's a huge mountain chain and encompasses much more than just the boundaries of the park and same Rocky Mountain. That's another similar one, right? The Rocky Mountains are a huge mountain chain, but Rocky Mountain National Park is just a few ranges of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as a shorthand way to say, we are talking solely about the land within the boundaries of that national park, those four letter codes are a great way to get that across without having to repeatedly say Great Smoky Mountains, Great Smoky Mountains. Anything to add to that, Megan? Oh, I was just going to say, it seems like a, a real laborious process, or is that even a word, laborious? Laborious, laborious. laborious. Um, <laughs> process for people to read through the book. If Black Canyon of the Gunnison is a great example. You know, if you're constantly typing that out to be specific about that space, and then constantly reading that, it, it felt a little bit labored. And so we loved the alpha codes when we were in the parks. We have stickers in of every place that we visited and we have a lot of those alpha code stickers. And so I think, you know, that novelty is, is pretty special to us. And I think, you know, readers of the book now, when they visit, if they visit with people that aren't familiar with that, it's such a fun tidbit to share. It's one of those random facts that people can share. And it's, it feels like you're kind of in the insiders club once you know, I feel it. Ah, okay. Okay. Obviously you weren't being paid by the word then. (laughs) No. (laughs) Now, you also left some space uh, for passport stamps for each park. We did. We are also big fans of the passport stamps. That's something that we make sure to get whenever we visit parks. Um, And Megan and I actually both have passport stamp tattoos. Um, We were lucky enough to be in Grand Teton for the solar eclipse in 2017. I thought I saw you there. Oh, (laughs) you definitely did. Definitely. Not, there weren't that many people around. No, no, there weren't. (laughs) Um, It was incredible. And as you probably know, the park issued special passport stamps for it that say Grand Teton, total solar eclipse, and then list the time of totality. Um, And so we both have that tattooed. I have it on my uh, right shoulder and Megan has it on her left arm. Hmm. All right, then. So is this um, one and done, or do you have another uh, park-related project in mind or underway? Well, we do have, so we have a lot going on. Um, We have, uh, so the book comes out March 31st, and then something that continues to be important to us is, you know, sharing as much of what we know and what we can share with as many people as possible. And, And another way to do that is guiding trips. And so We are in partnership with Atlas Obscura doing a trip through Arches and Canyonlands National Parks based out of Moab. I'm sure you're familiar. Um, I've heard of it. And so we're doing that later this year and hoping that that will lead to more trips with Atlas Obscura, certainly. And and just really working hard on advocating for public lands and, and parks and being as knowledgeable as you can about your visitation and excited about all of the things that you can learn. All right. Anything to add, Emily? No, I think we're both really excited. Obviously we've worked really hard on this book and we could not be more proud of the way that it turned out. Uh, We're excited about the content and it it also looks beautiful. The team at 10 Speed Press and our illustrator, Jillian Barfold, um, did an amazing job on it. Um, And we're both so excited to see it out there living in the world and to watch people engage with lands a little bit differently and maybe a little bit wisely. 
Yeah. Uh, the book's title is Scenic Science of the National Parks, an Explorer's Guide to Wildlife, Geology, and Botany. Um, it's available beginning on March 31st, and the authors Emily Hoff and Megan Keller joined us today to discuss it. Ladies, it is an enjoyable book, and uh, may you enjoy wonderful sales with it. Thank you so much, Kurt. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. We appreciate your time. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. To see bison in the national park system, many people first think of Yellowstone National Park, but that's just one of a number of parks that have bison roaming their landscapes. For instance, in the park's Midwest region, you can find bison at Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve, Badlands National Park, Wind Cave National Park, and Theodore Roosevelt National Park. It was back in 2008 that the Interior Department launched its Bison Conservation Initiative. The goal of that plan is to preserve remnants of the Great Plains landscape and help to maintain the influence of bison on natural and cultural landscapes. Recently, the Park Service's Natural Resource Stewardship and Science Team in Omaha, Nebraska, released a draft framework for bison stewardship in the Midwest region, which is also known as Interior Region 5, or IR5. One of the report's authors, Tanya Schenk, joins us today from the Park Service's Great Plains Cooperative Ecosystem Studies Unit in Lincoln, Nebraska, to discuss the report. Welcome to The Traveler, Tanya. Thank you. Now, this is a preliminary report. It says right on the top that it's a draft. Um, so it still has to pass some hurdles before it's formally adopted. Is that correct? Yes, this is only the very first preliminary step. We have a lot of steps to go through yet. Yeah. Now, why is the Bison Conservation Initiative and, and this report needed? Why is so much time and resources being put into the future of bison managed by the federal government? I think one of the things, especially um, in, in uh, Interior Region 5, what we wanted to do is we found, and you mentioned the four parks within our region that have bison, is what we felt was they were, each park was doing a good job of managing the bison within their park themselves. We wanted to manage the bison, not just within individual parks, but we wanted to think collectively and holistically about how we could manage bison, how we could further bison stewardship through joining efforts across these parks, uh, sharing resources, knowledge, 
um, how we could improve the bison conservation if we did that holistically as a region. We also wanted to expand our efforts to not just look at bison management as a single species management effort, but we want to manage bison within the larger ecosystems within which they exist naturally. And so that's what this initial effort is striving to arrive at, is a strategic plan that we can implement at a region-wide level while still maintaining the autonomy of the individual parks, but collectively working together for a much better, more consolidated effort at conservation of bison across the region. So across North America, there's roughly 500,000 bison. And in the federal um, holdings, I believe there's roughly 10,000 or so bison. And they're managed for different purposes. The the bulk of the bison, the bulk of the 500,000 out there are managed for commercial purposes, for you know meat generation or hides or, or whatnot. And the federal government's herds, they're managed for a totally different purpose, aren't they? More of a conservation purpose? Yes. And one of the issues you have to think about with bison is that right now, most bison herds are, I think all of them, are located in fenced areas for whatever purpose they might be uh, being raised for, but certainly on the DOI lands for conservation purposes. But they're all behind fences because they are an animal that needs to be managed. They, they have the potential to cause problems outside of defensed areas. However, this is not a natural way for bison to occur. They were a roaming animal. They used great swaths of land. And so given the constraints that we currently have about how we are managing our bison herds, um, we do have to be more proactive on the management of those bison if we're going to conserve bison as a wild animal. Um, some of the things that a bison loses by not being able to roam is they can't fully um, use their natural ability to move across the landscape as either the seasons change or there are different conditions in, within the environment that cause them to have to roam for better resources, whether that's for food or for water. Um, and so the management techniques that we need to employ are something that tries to help mimic or as best we can some of the natural behavior that the bison need for breeding purposes, for the mixture of genetic materials, for their own sort of self-selecting of herds and where they roam and who they breed and interact with. And so at some level, we have to try to mimic that as much as we possibly can within these fenced areas. You know, you, you raise a very interesting and important point because, you know, you go back two centuries and bison, you know, there was estimates that, you know, there might've been 70 million or 65 million bison on the continent, and they had millions of acres to, to graze and roam at their will. Do you run into concerns that they might lose their wildness, their, their wild behavior, so to speak, by being contained? That's certainly one of the things that we have to be concerned about and think about how we can manage to address those things as, as much as we can, again, still within the fenced areas. And the sort of management techniques that you can use are the number of bison you're going to have within those confined areas. Um, you don't want, because again, the bison are very impactful of, their, of the landscape, the vegetation, uh, the water sources. And so 
because they can't roam and they're confined within those areas, keeping the numbers at a reasonable number that allows them to both maintain as much wildness as possible and to serve in their natural ecological role on the landscape, that takes some really fine tuning and some constant um, vigilance on our part to make sure that we're trying to manage this, the bison within a fenced area and have them act as the ecological, in the, within the ecological role that they should play on the landscape. We're just trying to develop a framework by which managers um, and the NPS staff can, can develop a strategy where we're doing the very best we can to not only maintain the bison that we have now, um, but that we more fully integrate them into the ecology of the landscape and, and restore them culturally as well. And so we have, we wanted to help because the, the issues, the fundamental objectives that everybody wants to try to achieve with bison conservation can be conflicting at times. And what you need to develop is an objective way to try to put all these different fundamental objectives together, um, put them together so that we can really weigh the pluses and minuses of everything, and then come up with an alternative that will provide the very best strategy for conserving the bison herds, conserving them as wild animals, conserving them as within their ecological role on the landscape and conserving them culturally. I mean, there are many facets to bison management. They are a main player, a major player in both ecology and cultural aspects of the Great Plains. And this is our effort within um, the DOI Region 5 to try to better manage for the stewardship, the full stewardship of bison that in incorporates all of those things. We're talking today with Tanya Shanka, an author or co-author of a draft framework for bison stewardship that the National Park Service's uh, Natural Resource Stewardship and Science Team um, prepared. It's in a draft form right now going through the process of formal adoption. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Okay, we're back now with Tanya Schenk uh, discussing bison on federal landscape. Now, um, you, you've touched on it, Tanya, but managing the federal bison herds involves more than just the Interior Department or the National Park Service or other land management agencies. There are a lot of other outside interested stakeholders, no? Yes, very much so. We have, um, well, we have 
landowners that are adjacent landowners to these sites where the bison are. Uh, we have a lot of interest from the tribes because of the cultural restoration um, that we're hoping to contribute to. And I think the American people in general who are interested in bison stewardship and conservation. Yeah. Long term, any idea what we might expect in terms of bison herds on the federal lands? I mean, the report notes that the bison leadership team at Interior recognizes that single park management is not sufficient for achieving the initiative's goals. Any idea what, what might come down the road in terms of, you know, dealing with those single park herds and, and whether there'd be a way to connect them? I know looking at a, a federal lands map of South Dakota, you've got the, um, I believe it's the um, Ogallala National Grasslands, or is it the Buffalo Gap National Grasslands that encircles both Badlands and touches um, Wind Cave National Park. Is that something that possibly could be opened up to, to bison and connect those two herds? Well, there would be a, you know, a lot of things that would need to happen in order for, for that to become a reality. But I think as biologists um, and people interested in, in bison conservation, I mean, the more land, the more connectivity that we can um, secure for not only bison, but for any wildlife species will always help with their ability to maintain wildness because they have the ability to roam, to move, to find new areas that are more suitable to them. Um, and they will be able to perhaps even adapt as things change across the landscape, as our environments change and the stressors change, that the more land they have to select from, um, and to use the better off that they'll be because then it isn't just up to we as humans to try to anticipate their needs, but the animals themselves will be able to move around and secure the resources that they need to survive. Yeah. And of course, not to be overlooked from just having healthy bison herds on the landscape is the impact that they'd have on that landscape, right? I mean, they, they are ecological engineers and they create and sustain the, the prairie ecosystem. Absolutely. And that was one, that's one of the primary reasons that, um, that uh, the region wanted to develop a strategic plan that was not just individual park based, but looked at the big picture of things and not just the distribution across the landscape, but we definitely want to be looking and managing for bison as an ecological component within the bigger ecosystem. Um, they're a big player, but they're, the, the, the entire prairie ecosystem is something that we are interested in conserving. The bison serve to contribute to that ecosystem. And so it's a much more holistic approach to managing instead of managing for a single species. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know in here in Utah, where I'm based, um, the state um, manages some herds in conjunction with, I believe, the BLM. Um, down in the southern part of the state and um, in the um, Henry Mountains. And they also have a, a herd over in the Book Cliffs and, of course, one on Antelope Island State Park. And what's interesting in terms of the, the ones down at the Book Cliffs and uh, over at uh, the Henry Mountains, I, I believe, I know for a fact that the Henry Mountains herd coexists side by side with cattle herds. So it, it can be done without concern of um, cattle integration or, or transmitting diseases back and forth, I guess. Yes, I think so. <laughs> Wasn't sure if you knew about that or not. I, I didn't know about that particular herd, but I, I do think that that can occur. Yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. It really is. 
I think a point to make too is that um, even though uh, the National Park Service, I mean, we're on federal lands here, but for for an animal that has the the um, need to roam and and require such large landscapes to actually function on the landscape as a wild animal in their full capacity. Um, no one federal agency or even all the federal agencies together can provide all of the land that would be needed for the vision that we have for bison conservation. And so I think what we really need to work towards is a lot of partnerships and collaboration with private landowners, with um, NGOs, other private organizations that are interested in bison conservation, state lands, um, tribal lands. I, I think this is one of those projects and efforts that could lead, because I think many, many people have a great interest in conserving this particular species and conserving it within the habitat and the ecosystem within which it occurs. And it's going to take collaboration and partnerships. And um, I think this is a, a great species to ensure that because we have a common goal. No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I remember a conversation I had with uh, Dan Wink uh, back when he was superintendent at Yellowstone National Park. I had asked him if the period of large-scale conservation had ended with the 21st century. And he didn't think so. He he just pointed to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and the, the jigsaw puzzle, if you will, of, of federal and state lands that are intermingled and the, the collaborative agreements they can work across those landscapes to provide for large-scale conservation, which the bison certainly would require in some areas for sure. I agree. And I think also, too, is that there's been a maturity in understanding of what large landscape conservation can do to enhance even human existence through ecosystem services and providing, you know, cleaner air, clean, cleaner water, um, pollinators, um, everything that actually requires uh, the collaboration and efforts on a much greater scale than any one, any one entity, whether it's federal agencies or state agencies or private landowners can achieve on their own. It does take the collaboration across all those different land ownerships. Yeah. Now, I know that uh, interior, um, I guess, interior um, crews and Park Service crews have been working on taking blood from the various federal herds and taking DNA samples and, uh, on one hand, trying to track the lineage, if you will, um, of where their bison herds came from, as well as to determine whether there's any cattle integration. And for re listeners who aren't familiar with that term, it... Uh, pertains to whether any cattle genes are in bison from um, cross-breeding attempts um, about a century ago. But do you know, have, have those tests, um, um, that research been completed yet? Have they finalized that information? The, the last I heard, it's very close, <laughs> but I have not seen the final report on that yet. And I do know that the information that we'll get from that is that will be incorporated into, into our strategic plan. But again, it's um, and, it, and it's definitely one of the fundamental objectives that we're looking at, but there are many, like I said, competing objectives that will be just as important probably as the genetic component. But it is one of the things that we impact um, a lot by keeping bison within fenced areas. Um, we, they don't have the ability to move around and they don't have the ability to be as selective as they might have been 
in the past as far as um, uh, breeding. And so, um, anyhow, the information will be well used, but we have lots of other things that we need to consider as well as just the genetic composition of the herds. Yeah. So where where does the work on the bison conservation initiative now head? I mean, obviously, this is a draft report we've been talking to. It's got to be finalized. Um, where do we go from here? We are working right now to go back and make sure that we have included all the fundamental objectives that we want to include in the report are there, and they're worded as we want them to be worded. Um, and then what we need to do is build what we call a consequences table, which is going to help us look at different strategies that we might consider, different things that we might that might be the main goals of a strategic plan, what, what it is that we want to highlight. And then we do a series of trade-offs, uh, build a consequences table to see, is there one of the strategies we've developed that is basically helpful to all of the objectives that we're trying to meet? Is there one that causes more harm or maybe more difficult to implement than another one? What will give us, what will help us get the best strategy to meet most of our objectives? Um, and that, that's the crux of the work for this particular effort that once we get the consequences table completed, um, then we can move on and develop the full-blown strategic plan. Well, it's certainly an exciting time when it comes to bison management on the federal lands. Um, I know there's a lot of different parks looking at uh, bison and, and what might be possible. We've been talking today with Tanya Schenk, who's a, a co-author of a, a draft framework for the bison stewardship in the Midwest region of the National Park Service, uh, also known as Interior Region 5. Tanya, thanks so much for joining us today, and, and we look forward to seeing the fruits of this work and, and what the genetic testing might show and, and the other pieces as they come together. Well, thank you, and thank you for your interest. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Please keep in mind that National Parks Traveler is made possible through the generous donations of its listeners and readers. To help make these shows possible in the months and years ahead, please donate at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.